Welcome. This is Crime Noir, a true crime podcast telling our stories. And I'm your host, Candace, and this is my Black History Month special, part two, Fred Hampton. Welcome back to yet another episode of Crime Noir, y'all. Um, I'm going to be talking about Fred Hampton today. He is a civil rights activist and legend and icon. And if you don't know who he is, which I'm pretty sure most of my fan base does, you're in for a treat because he, at the age of 20, was so brilliant and so genius and his life was unfortunately cut short. So let's just discuss it. Let's jump into it. Before I get started, I just want to give a trigger warning that although today's episode does not feature explicit language, I do talk about violent themes. So listener discretion is advised. Fred Hampton was born on August 30th, 1948. And during his adolescence, he was very athletic and very bright academically. After he graduated high school, he wanted to play baseball for the New York Yankees. However, he went to school to study pre-law at Trenton Junior College. Fred decided to study law as a way to become knowledgeable about defenses to use against police brutality. He later then became very involved with the NAACP as he led the Youth Council of the West Suburban Branch. He was the youngest of three children, and growing up, he actually lived in Maywood, Illinois, and then moved to Hampton, and that is where he got into activism. He started organizing as early as when he was in high school, which is such a big deal, and he ended up organizing the school um, black population because everything was so anti-black, and he protested the racism that they faced from the educational system. Fred Hampton's organizing within his high school increased the number of teachers in the actual school. So he was young, and some people just have that leadership quality about them, and Fred Hampton definitely had that about him. During his organizing at NAACP, the Black Panther Party was also on the rise. Fred was inspired by the Black Panther Party's 10-point program. If you're not familiar with what that is, let me explain. In 1966, the Black Panther founders Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale developed the 10-point program. The program were rules for members of the organization in which they would live by. These rules were eventually made public on May 5, 1967, after they were published in a weekly newsletter. The 10-point program is divided into two sections, the quote-unquote what we want now section and the what we believe system. The What We Want section advocated for freedom to determine the destiny of the Black community, full employment for Black people, and the end of robbery by the capitalists of the Black community, a.k.a. Eat the Rich. Decent housing for the Black community, education for Black people that is historically accurate and ties into how modern-day problems arise and how they're handled. They wanted all black men to be exempt from military service and the immediate end to police brutality and the murder of black people. They wanted freedom for all black men locked up in various jails and prisons as they did not receive a fair trial. They wanted all black people who are brought to trial to be tried in court of their peer group, which means people from the black community. And their final point was that they want land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace. And that led him to Chicago. And to be honest, y'all, those points were very logical. A couple of them would never have happened. But I do believe 
the foundation of the Black Panther Party was very solid, and I think those were good points, majority of them anyway. Anyway, once he moved to Chicago, that is when he really stood out as far as leadership. He was able to organize essentially a peace treaty for Chicago's most prolific and violent gangs. One thing that made Fred Hampton a very good leader is that he believed in women in leadership positions, and that was not common in the Black Panther Party um, because of sexism. And I think that's really dope about him is that he believed in putting women in various programs within the or- the movement, the organization. He definitely believed in intersectionality and socialist movements, and he was definitely an anti-capitalist. He was described as a very personable, charismatic, and had the gift of gab. This allowed him to become very influential very quickly within the Black Panthers. As a result, he became a leader of the Chicago sect of the Black Panther. As a leader, he organized rallies and a number of Black Panther community service-based components, such as the People's Clinic and the Free Breakfast Clinic. The People's Clinic was an initiative started by the Black Panther Party that provided the Black community with options for healthcare clinics. During this time, there are many free clinics which allowed for patients to seek treatment and medical research to be conducted. The Black Panther Party organized this as they believed that the healthcare system was deeply flawed and private clinics were too expensive, plus they could not properly evaluate and serve certain communities. Per the Black Panther Party, the purpose of the clinics were to serve the people, body, and soul, and in order to continue their fight towards equality, members needed to be healthy and of great mind. He was also a part of the free breakfast program as well, which served as a pantry to give free breakfast and food to the Black community. The breakfast pantry was intentionally set ablaze as it was located on the third floor in the Black Panthers field office and it was the only floor touch and it was set ablaze by the police and the FBI later called it the program horrible and disruptive to the youth. So we'll get into that in a minute, y'all. During this time is when the FBI went to work to destroy the leadership within the Black Panther movement. Using the counterintelligence program, For those who don't know, the counterintelligence program was an investigative tactic and program used by the FBI from approximately 1956 to 1971. It was used as a tactic to surveil, infiltrate, and discredit American political movements and organization. It's highly controversial as the methods to do so were illegal at times. During this time period, the FBI targeted movements and individuals that were quote-unquote subversive like the civil rights movement and anything empowering black people was targeted. I'm pretty sure the FBI still continues to use this method, maybe not the legal portion, but I know surveillance is at an all-time high. Counterintelligence program uses tactics like discrediting targets with psychological warfare, using smear campaigns, fake documents, creating fake news in the media, harassment, wrongful imprisonment in the media, and violence, which could also include assassination. Per the FBI, the reason for using this method is to protect national security and maintain the status quo in terms of social and political order. In March 1968, Hoover announced that he wanted to prevent the rise of black prolific figures and stop black nationalism and pride, and he labeled the Black Panthers a hate group, and every city with a Black Panther chapter was instructed to start dismantling. So basically, the FBI started doing their surveillance. And the black, they wanted to discredit the Black Panther Party and make it disappear. 
It's clear that Hoover was a huge racist bigot and he didn't want the black community to prosper or fight for inequality or against inequality. So, yeah, he definitely employed a lot of like racial systematic oppression against black people and definitely used divide and conquer to break up the Black Panther Party. Hoover must have seen how much the youth respected um, the Black Panther Party and how active they were in organizing in the community. I mean, Fred Hampton was only 20 years old making things happen. Like, I can't, my 20-year-old mind was so childish and immature, like, I can't even imagine doing the things he was doing. But anyway, Hoover sent many letters regarding Fred to various government agencies, such as the CIA and other military entities, to warn them about the Black Panther Party and the rise of Fred Hampton. The FBI also sent out fake letters to other gang members and gang associations that Fred Hampton was trying to build rapport with, sending out like fake hit letters that Fred Hampton was trying to get people smoked, and that wasn't true, and even the gang communities did not believe it. So during this time, the FBI used a lot of snitches and informants to get the drop on Fred Hampton. And the most prolific one, or the most sinister one, in my opinion, is William O'Neill. And he was a really close, essential person to Fred. He was in charge of security for Fred while they were at the Black Panther Party. And he had key access to the Black Panther Party headquarters and safe houses. And he was just a teenager at this time. But he worked as an informant for the FBI and eventually gave up the four plan and all this inside information on the Black Panther Party, which led to the raid, which eventually killed Fred Hampton. He was actually recruited by a FBI agent by the name of Roy Mitchell um, after he got caught stealing a car. The FBI agent said, hey, if you do me a favor, I'll let this go away. And that's how he became an informant. And he got all the drop on Fred Hampton via this guy. So on December 4th, 1969, the police and the FBI conducted a raid at an apartment at approximately 4.45 a.m. in the morning. At the time, there was a couple, well, there's a bunch of people in the apartment, but Fred Hampton and his fiance, who was pregnant, she was nine months pregnant at the time, Deborah Johnson, were in the bed and the police burst in and shot him multiple times while he was in his sleep. According to Deborah, she woke up as someone was yelling for Fred to wake up and all she heard was consistent shooting and she knew it was Fred. Mark Clark and Fred Hampton were killed and the rest of the occupants, which I believe were seven of them, were charged with assault, with attempted murder and weapons violations. So then the FBI kind of started doing like a smear campaign, same with the local police. They started saying that, the Black Panther Party had struck first and they were violent and there was assault on police officers. Well, it turns out that that was a lie. The police had fired over 90 shots. And guess how many of the Black Panthers fought? shot? One. Literally one single shot was fired from the Black Panther parties. Just one. And there was 14 officers that raided that house. 14. And not a single one was injured, but every single person in that uh, that apartment was injured and two were killed. William O'Neill definitely, in my opinion, has blood on his hands because without him, I don't know if the FBI would have gotten the information. I mean, he did provide the floor plan. He was acting as a close, close informant. And according to him, I read an interview he did. 
he was getting paid hundreds of dollars to be an informant. So he didn't really seem remorseful. I mean, he did an interview in 1984 about this incident, and he doesn't believe he was really wrong. I mean, he was sad that his information that he provided did get two people killed, but he didn't really regret anything. And he feels like the Black Panther Party was too radical and he doesn't consider it part of the civil rights movement. He considers it its own entity. And I don't know, I was just really disgusted by reading his um, interview. I'm going to link it in my show notes. So if you guys are curious, I implore you to read it because it's very insightful. He, in the interview, he did admit that he liked working with um, law enforcement and he really did respect the FBI, but he also admitted that when it was all said and done, he was a pawn in the grand scheme of things and that there was a potential that he could have been in the raid. And he thinks that if he was like at the raid, they probably would have killed him too. So he really felt disposable at the end. He ended up killing himself in 1990 at the age of 40 by walking in front of a car. And it's speculated that the guilt of informing on Fred Hampton really got to him. But that's just speculation. I don't think he left a note. I didn't see a note or anything like that. So we'll never know. But I have a feeling that got to him too. So the FBI's other version of events is that they knocked on the door and asked to be let in, and a woman with a shotgun came to the door and said no. And that's why they started firing, which was proven not true. An independent autopsy showed that Fred Hampton had barbiturates in his system, and he was actually asleep when he was killed. Um, According to reports, it was William O'Neill who drugged him, But in the interview I read, William O'Neill denies it. And he actually denied that um, Fred Hampton actually ever did drugs. I'm not exactly sure if I consider William trustworthy in that regard, but it's an interesting discrepancy to say the least. After Fred and Mark were killed, the Black Panther Party would stage walkthroughs through the apartment because they wanted to inform the community what actually happened because there was so much misinformation and fake news being printed that they wanted to make sure that they were getting the truth. And the FBI and the local law enforcement never shut down the crime scene. So that's how they were able to do it. And the only reason why we know of the truth of what happened to Fred Hampton is because there was a break-in at the FBI field office in Pennsylvania and the FBI documents were discovered and leaked to the public. So that's how we know the truth about what happened to Fred Hampton and how he was murdered and assassinated for his political activism. Immediately after Fred Hampton was killed, 300 people dropped out of the Black Panther Party in his chapter and never returned. So him dying was a blow to the community and to activism. And his funeral was attended by over 5,000 people and had speakers like Jesse Jackson. So it was definitely, the community definitely felt it. So all the Black Panthers that were in the house that were charged were, the charges were eventually dropped. And I still feel like this is very, very sad because he never got to meet his child. So it just sucks. It really, really sucks. In 1970, the survivors and family members decided to sue the government, both local and federal, for a civil rights violation. They sued for $47.7 million, but the case was dismissed because the government withheld documentation, 
which proved that it got in the way of the judicial process. A trial started again in 1979, and finally, in 1982, Cook County and the federal government settled for $1.85 million, and that is a drastic decrease from the $47.7 million initial ask, and that's all I'm going to say, and that is crazy to me because... Because the FBI and the Chicago police took responsibility for what they did. However, no individuals were held accountable for any of it. So the people who shot up, raided, informants, know nothing, they were not held responsible in the court of law. And I think that is absurd. My personal thoughts on Fred Hampton and this whole like incident, it is very sad to me. I felt really sad reading about it, researching about it, because he was so young. He was basically brilliant. And I was listening to another podcast called Revolution on the Left, I believe. And they did a really great job explaining how like Fred Hampton helped birthed some of the political movements and because of that we got Jesse Jackson and Barack Obama and etc so I think his impact was definitely really really great and he's definitely a legend in the civil rights movement and the Black Panther Party and I also believe if Fred Hampton was alive today or at least got to see carry out more of his vision I definitely think he would have been a prominent uh, political figure I definitely think that because at 20 he was already rising in the ranks and making political noise. Most people at 20 are partying, they're in college, they're not really trying to make political noise. So he was definitely killing it. And as far as the government covering it up, I just think that stuff is so spooky. And it creeps me out because you never know what's going on. And the only reason why we know about that today is because someone broke in and got those documents and leaked them. And his family never really saw justice for it because no one, no individual took accountability for it. And yes, they got $1.85 million, but that was split amongst a lot of people. So it's just a sad situation um, all around. And it just makes me appreciative of the things I do have today and our ancestors that fought for these rights. Even if I don't agree with all their tactics, I still have a tremendous respect for what they did for our people and just it's just shocking to me so that just wraps up part two of this series I hope you guys enjoy it I have another one coming for you guys Um, I'm gonna get into some noir news I only have one story today Um, I just want to say rest in peace to Pop Smoke he was only 20 years old if you guys don't know who that is he was on the smash um, single welcome to the party he's a New York-based rapper Um, I was not a huge fan, but I did like his music and I did listen to it in the gym and stuff like that. And unfortunately, he was murdered in a home robbery situation. So it's just sad all around. Again, here we are talking about two black men that were murdered at 20 years old or 20, 21 years old. That is so crazy to me because they had such a full life to live and it's cut short and they'll never get to be anything else. And so I just want to take the time to reflect on that and just send my condolences to Pop Smoke's family and Fred Hampton's family. If you're listening by chance, big ups to you guys. And that's all I have for this week, you guys. I appreciate you guys for listening to me all the time. You know where to find me, Crime X Noir on Twitter, Crime Noir the Podcast on Instagram, and my website's live. Talk to you guys next week. Bye. <laughs>